Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here a beautiful morning. I thank you for all that is here and and those of us, Lord, that you've been blessing throughout the week. Lord, may we take this time to glorify you, to magnify your goodness, to share that in love with each other. Lord, help us to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to vote one another, Lord, as a community of believers called together, Lord, to shout and to sing your praise and to submit and follow Jesus as Lord. And we proclaim that this morning, that he is Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Given us. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 8. We're starting a new chapter this week. Title of the message is Men Like Trees Walking. Last week we discovered that Jesus attempts to find relief from the demands of the crowd, but instead he encounters a woman with an urgent request. Heal my daughter that is possessed by a demon. What follows was a battle of wits between Jesus and the Gentile woman in which finally Jesus honors her request based on her statement of faith and her attitude of humbleness. We saw Jesus then travels back to the Decapolis and he heals a Gentile man who was deaf. What we learned is that those two encounters from last week at the end of chapter 7 foreshadows the future outpouring of the blessings of Abraham to the Gentiles. As we see in Abraham, the blessings of Abraham in Genesis 12, we turned to that last week where God promised Abraham that I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And instead of hating the Gentiles as the Jews did, they were actually to love them. And instead of hiding the gospel and hiding the idea of the Messiah, they were to shine it and let it show. This let us conclude that today we are also called to follow the example of humbleness and gratefulness shown by Jesus to these two Gentiles. In today's passage, Jesus' ministry is still to the Gentiles. It continues with an exorcism, a healing, and a nature miracle in a mainly Gentile populated area. The theme of this narrative that we're going to look at today is a lack of spiritual understanding of the religious leaders, the crowds, and even the disciples. Chapter 8 may seem very similar as we've been reading. It seems like we've been kind of redundant as we've already read chapter 7. And you'll see that there's quite a lot of of parallels in chapter 6 through 8. There's a feeding of the multitude, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000. There's the crossing and the sea and the landing. One which includes Jesus as a ghost, the other is just kind of crossing. A conflict with Pharisees, conversations about bread, healing, and confession of faith. It seems like we've been reading the same story over and over. And in essence, as we see, Mark has been using his narrative to kind of paint a picture for us that's leading up to a very important portion of Scripture that we're going to look at next week. So as we look at today, we want to look at Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at a large portion of Scripture, larger than normally. Bear with me. I need you to have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 8. So with that, let's pray. Father, understanding Mark is important. It is a portion of the Bible that you have revealed yourself, especially the works of Christ. And Mark is pointing to us that Jesus is the Son of God, but yet many people 
are not seeing that. So I pray that your spirit would now just open our hearts, help us to understand your word. Father, let us be able to tell the difference between your word, your truth, and just my own opinion and thoughts and preferences. And I pray that you would just inform all of us and then give us the, the courage and the boldness to respond to your truth this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple of observations. First is Jesus is going to show once again that he is the Son of God by miraculously feeding 4,000 people in Mark chapter 8. Suffice to say, we see that Jesus once again is feeding a large group of people. This time, though, is after three days of teaching, Jesus shows compassions toward the crowd as hunger begins to set in. Realizing that some of them have come from a far away and that it was a desolate place with no place to acquire food. Again, no, no drive-in restaurants, no fast food, no way to really just have delivery. There was no Amazon with drones that could bring you groceries and those types of things. Jesus approaches the disciples and he says, here, feed them. Can you give them some food to eat? And he looks for them for a solution. Now, if you're like me, as you've been reading through this, when Jesus asks his disciples for a solution, you realize the disciples never have a solution, do they? They seem to just keep missing the point. In this case, again, Jesus asks them, hey, we need to feed this, why don't you feed them? The disciples, though, what's interesting, seemingly have forgotten the feeding of the 5,000, and they ask, where in the world can we get this food? We've already seen them do this in the feeding of the 5,000. He commands his disciples to feed them with the seven loaves this time and a few small fish that are found. If there is ever a moment of deja vu, this was it, but yet it seems to pass right over their heads. Obediently, though, they proceed to do so after a prayer of thanks, and this time there were over seven baskets left over. Now, at first glance, when we read this story, one might think, hey, the amount of people were less, yet they had more loaves than last time, but why did they have less leftovers? Well, the Greek word for baskets here, and this is for those of you who always like the trivia, I wanted to throw you, throw you a bone or a piece of bread, so to speak. It actually refers to a bigger type of basket than the feeding of the 5,000. The baskets referred to in the feeding of the 5,000 were actually small baskets, referred to small baskets, where someone would put a little bit, maybe some breakfast or some lunch, or just a little bit as they would travel maybe from town to town. But the baskets we're talking about here were actually large enough to carry a person. We see that in Acts chapter 9 where it talks about Saul when he was first preaching. And the crowd was in an uproar and they were seeking to stone him, to kill him. And it says that Saul's disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening wall, luring him in a basket. So in this case, even though it seems like there's less food left over, there's actually more and it was enough for a large basket, a basket large enough to take a man, and they put it all that food and they took it away. Though that's an interesting observation, the real point of this narrative is that, as always, Jesus' provision is sufficient to satisfy. For they ate and they were satisfied. And that's something you and I have to understand. Because many times we don't believe that Jesus is enough, do we not? There are many times that we live our life and we truly do not believe that Jesus is enough. It's like we take Jesus and we add him and just stir him into whatever problem. He's just one part of the solution. We've got to add this and we've got to add that. But again, Jesus is the solution. And Jesus is all the provision that you and I need. 
Now, if you're like me, you have to ask the question, and it's not just me, but it's been throughout history as people have read this portion of Mark. The question might come, is this event of the feeding of the 5,000, is this the same event with different numbers? Is this a contradiction? And I just have to answer with no. Some of the differences are the teaching the feeding of the 5,000 took place in one day, whereas as we see in this event, it took place over how many days? Three. The number of loads of bread is different, five and seven. The number of leftover is different, seems to be more. And he, Jesus left with them instead of waiting behind to pray. Remember the first time he left, they left, he stayed behind on the mountain. That's where we see Jesus walking on the water. And this time it says he just left with them. I think the one that proves the point is Jesus refers to them as two different events as we get to verses 14 through 20. So what Mark is writing this down is so that we would understand that once again, Jesus is the son of God and he's able to provide for 4,000 men and women and children, whatever the full number was, and not only do that, but also give them a large leftover portion. They were satisfied. Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, as we're looking at Mark, that's what Mark is trying to prove. So it's important for us, as we read Mark, to understand that's what the evidence we are, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Now, the second observation, it's found in Mark chapter 8, 11 through 13 where the Pharisees reject Jesus' work and they demand an authentic sign from God. See, the Pharisees are seeking to discredit Jesus. Anytime they're asking something, they have an ulterior motive. You ever met someone like that that's asked you a question, but really they're trying to find out something else behind? And there's just something off about them and they make you uneasy? They're that type of person. You've got to be careful with those types. They do not accept his message. They don't accept his miracles. They don't even accept him as the man, as the Messiah. They reject any claims that he is the Messiah. They are jealous of his popularity. They're envious of his power. And they're fearful of his teachings. They are demanding that Jesus authenticate himself. But we need to realize this. Their request is not unbiblical. Moses, Elijah, and other prophets that we find in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, they performed miracles to prove that they were from God. Moses, we know, when he says, well, how will they know that I'm sent? He says, well, here's the rod. Tell them that I am sent you. Elijah did miraculous things. We think of the fire coming down and so on and so forth. So this is not necessarily an unbiblical request, but what they're saying is authenticate. We want a sign from God himself. So it's not the request that is wrong. It's not the request that was unbiblical. But Jesus knew their heart, their heart motive. And that was what was sinful. And that was what the problem was. Remember, they have accused Jesus of being possessed by Satan, of breaking the Sabbath and the ceremonial laws, of being a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Mark tells us earlier that they had banded together with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. However, when they come and ask Jesus to give a sign, Jesus doesn't do parlor tricks and he refuses their request. What else could Jesus have done to convince them? What else? He has done so many miracles. What's amazing, we were talking about this, I think, in men's Bible study on Thursday, is that in John, John says that if all the works of Jesus could be recorded in the books, there's probably not enough ink or enough libraries, enough books to hold them all. What we see in the Gospels is just a small sample of Jesus proving who he was. 
So in this case, these people who were eyewitnesses, they're asking for more. What else could Jesus have done to convince them? The miracles weren't enough. I mean, he healed someone who was lame. He made the dead come up alive. He was able to walk on water, calm a storm. He was able to make food out of nothing, turn water into wine. He did all these wonderful things, but yet still, it wasn't enough for them. They wanted a sign actually from God. The miracles weren't enough. They wanted a direct sign from God himself. Interesting, this was the very thing that Satan tempted Jesus to do early in his ministry. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew, if you would, chapter 4. Keep your finger there in Mark, and then if you would, turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 5. This is going to be very similar. Satan is going to present him the exact opportunity that they were desirous of. Look at Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now remember, the temple was on a, a large hill. It was, it was magnificent. You could see it for miles as you were walking to Jerusalem. He put him on the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple. And he said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Remember, this is the declaration that Mark is making. This is the declaration that Jesus himself has been making. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Jump off. Just jump off. Why? Because the Bible says he will command his angels concerning you and that on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here's what Satan is giving Jesus. He says, okay, you're the Messiah. Let's do a shortcut. There's no reason to go any further. Just let me take you up there now. Just jump and do a swan dive. As you do a beautiful dive, do whatever you want, and as you're getting close to the ground, all of a sudden, the heavens are going to go open up, angels are going to come down, and they're going to come, and they're just going to grab you softly like a pillow, and then they're going to take you to the ground and restore you. Now, if you saw that happen, would you not be convinced that there's something special about this man, Jesus? Yeah. I th- you would at least say something, Okay you at least think there's something special going on. That there in itself would be proof to the religious leaders, to those that would have eyewitnessed that account, that this Jesus is something special. But what does Jesus say? Again, as written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knew where he was heading. Remember, we're heading to a cross. That's where we're heading. The only sign that's going to be given is that of the cross and the resurrection. Jesus says, I'm sorry, you're not going to get it. Jesus really just leaves them behind, like the soup Nazi in Seinfeld. He says, no soup for you. He says, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. You're not worth it. Jesus just really leaves them behind. But let me ask you, in what ways do you and I do the same thing to Jesus today? In what ways do you and I do the same thing to God? Prove that you exist. We talked about that a little bit this morning. Prove that you're here. And we're talking about Christ followers. Hey, I want to see Jesus at work in my finances. That's the whole thing of health and wealth prosperity, is it not? If I love Jesus and he loves me, then he's going to give me everything I need. But is that biblical? No. Jesus hasn't promised you a rose garden. He hasn't promised that you will have everything you want. He did promise that he will meet your needs and that he'll take care of you. He says not to worry about those things. But you and I are so many times in our thinking, if not in our words, 
We think that way. We're always putting Jesus to the test. We're like Gideon who's putting down fleeces. We've talked about this before, and I don't want to be repetitive, but many times people talk about Gideon. We have to have the faith of Gideon who sits down a fleece and say, let it water on the top, but let it be dry on the bottom. And if that's not enough, then you tell him the next day, we'll now do it in reverse. So let me tell you, that's not a sign of faith. When we talk about putting out fleeces like Gideon, that's not a faith. He doubted God's word. An angel came to him and said, do this. He doubted it, so he said, well, then prove it. And you and I, so many, are like, prove it to me. Prove that you're real. Prove it. I don't trust you. I don't trust your promises. So the Pharisees reject Jesus' work, and they demand for Jesus to authenticate himself. Well, number three, as we look at Mark 8, 14 through 21, the next section, is Jesus warns the disciples not to adopt the same attitude as the Pharisees did. As we look at the story, they began to go. And while sailing to the other side of the sea, the disciples are playing the blame game of who forgot the bread as they realize, hey, we only have one bread and there's 13 of us. How in the world are we going to feed all 13 of us with one loaf of bread? Now, I don't know how, what the size was. I don't know if it was circular or if it was long. I don't know if it was like our bread or whatnot. But they're saying, who forgot the bread? There's only one. In response to their bickering, Jesus tells them, to watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What an interesting way to speak to him. Leaven is like yeast. And in the scripture, leaven, yeast, is used as a symbol of both good and evil. Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in the three measures of flour till it was all leaven, until it grew. And as I said, there's a portion of good, but also in Corinthians, Paul says, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What we're seeing here is he's saying, uh, using a, a real world idea of yeast and leaven as an example of its permeating power. You put a little leaven in there, a little yeast, and it makes the bread grow and, and become much larger than it was at the beginning. As scripture says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The leaven that Jesus is speaking about here, the one that he's warning about him, is the desire for a sign from God to validate the actions of Jesus. He says, don't let their mind attitude, don't let what they desire to be even a speck in your heart. Why? Because even though you put a little bit in there, it starts to grow. Isn't that how sin works in our life, though? You just have a little bit of it, and then begins to grow and grow. Does anybody really plan to become an addict? to anything, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or pornography? Does an affair happen because this is what I want? No, it starts bit by bit, allowing just the thought, just the presence, and allowing it to grow, allowing it to grow. In the same way, the Bible says that you and I, just as a small community, can do much for God because us as a little group, as we go out throughout the communities and our neighborhoods, our living for God is like a leaven in which it slowly grows larger and larger as the invisible church becomes larger and becomes a greater witness. He says you need to be careful of allowing that sinful attitude, in this case that desire for Jesus to authenticate himself, to prove himself in other ways. The leaven that Jesus spoke is the desire from God to validate the actions of Jesus. And he gives them seven questions. And look at this as you look at your Bible. Jesus points out their spiritual blindness with seven questions. 
Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Why is that an issue? He's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get them to, let me understand. Do you not perceive or understand about the loaves? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many full baskets did you take up? They answered 12. And then seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken bread did you take up? They answered him, seven. He says, do you not yet understand? You're experiencing what I'm capable of doing. Is you, do you not understand? Is your hearts hardened? Do you not see? Tell me what is going on with your mind's heart. I have been giving you these evidences. I have been giving you proof of who I am. It's clear that Jesus is pointing out to the disciples that at this point, after observing Jesus for some time, after witnessing his miraculous power, his life transforming, or life-changing message, having private discussions and instructions and teaching moments, and even performing the very same miracles that Jesus did themselves in their short-term mission trip, they should have more spiritual insight. But yet they still do not. They're still worried about one loaf of bread among 13 of them. They're still struggling to put all the pieces together. Have you ever felt like that? I have. And even as a Christian, our lives are spent trying to put all the pieces of God together. How does this fit in? How does that? Now hindsight's 20-20, but in this case, they can't even see look back. They're just baffled. They still don't understand. And Jesus has an anger at this. This is not something he desires. He's angry at the Pharisees when he says he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of the heart. We have to realize this hardness of the heart is not something that Jesus abides with. This is something that he's warning against in the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Mark writes the disciples did not understand again about the loaves. Because their hearts were hardened. So Jesus is warning, hey listen, do not let your heart get hardened. And there are many things that will harden us. We may struggle. There may be things in our lives that God has brought us through through His providence that will make our heart hard. If God loved me, then He would not have allowed this to happen. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Have you ever had those moments? If Jesus really was good, there's no way that this would ever happen to me. That's what Satan does. He begins to have you question and doubt the goodness of God. That's the very thing that happened in Genesis 3. That and me. What did Satan do? He had him doubt the goodness of God. He had him doubt the word of God. He had them doubt. And that's the still method that he uses. For the Pharisees, they doubt the goodness of God. They see all that he's doing and think that he must be of Satan. So give us a sign from God. The disciples, they see all the goodness of God, but yet all of a sudden they see that, oh, we only have one piece of bread, so what are we going to do? Their hearts are still hardened. Their eyes are still blinded to the truth of who Jesus is. How could that be? They've traveled with him for some time. They've performed many of the same works. They've had private instruction and teaching with Jesus, but yet their hearts are still hardened. And the warning is, do not let that infect you. So that brings us to number four. 
It's Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. As Jesus displays his power as the Son of God once again, but then this time in healing a blind man. Read silently with me as I read out loud. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Look at verse 24. And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So verse 25, this is interesting. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything how? Clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not enter, even enter the village. Now, this passage of scripture has always been something that I've kind of just wondered about. I don't know if you have also. This is the first instance, by the way, in Mark, where he records Jesus healing someone who is blind. In this case, the blind man, like the deaf man from last week's passage, is a Gentile. And like the deaf man, Jesus leads this man from the crowd, and he heals him using physical touch. And again, you and I must remember that as a Jew, it had been very inappropriate for Jesus to touch a Gentile man or woman, for that would make him unceremoniously clean. It's very inappropriate, but yet, once again, Jesus touches this man. Strangely, though, here's what I find was strange. Jesus' first actions, the spitting on the eyes and the laying on his hands, did not immediately heal the man. After doing so, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And the man replies, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Well, that's not necessarily a sixth sense quote, but one that shows that the healing was only partially successful. Jesus actually had to reapply and do the same thing over again. I don't know about you, but that's always has struck me as odd. And I had to ask the question as I was preparing this message, because I finally have to now, okay, I can't just overlook it. I got to now try to talk about it. So in studying this, I'm looking at three questions came to mind. One, why did Jesus have to do it this way? Question number two, is Jesus losing his power? Is Jesus' power diminishing because he had been healing too many people and all of a sudden he's getting less power from God? He hasn't been able to get away from the crowds. He's not praying, so all of a sudden is Jesus kind of losing his battery, you know, like the Energizer? Is it because of lack of rest? He hasn't been able to get some rest and eat? Maybe he didn't get any of the bread. Maybe he's tired. Or maybe it's the disbelief of the respondent. Well, Mark doesn't elaborate on how and the why. He just records the narrative without explanation. That's how Mark is. Mark is just laying out the facts. But he's still trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. You and I must be careful in how we interpret this healing so as not to question Jesus' power as the Son of God. So let me give you this, and this is my two cents. I'd like to propose a different reason why Mark includes this. By the way, this is not included in any other of the Gospels. It's only found here. So my reason is because I believe Jesus doesn't heal the man at first touch. Because I believe that this healing serves as an illustration of what we just saw earlier of partial sight of the disciples. By the way, let me say this. If a pastor ever comes to you and say, I found out and discovered something new that no one else has ever discovered, you probably should get up and walk away, okay? So I was glad when I did some more study and I found some others who would agree with me because that's the essence of interpretation. In the ESV study Bible, it notes that in the context of that passage, 
and especially of light of Jesus' focus on the disciples' lack of understanding, the man's answer begins to become more clear with what's going on. They see him vaguely. They see Jesus just vaguely. They see him. They see him do his miracles. But again, remember what was in their mind's eye. To them, the Messiah was a military political leader, was he not? They were looking for someone to kill the Romans and give them back their land. Remember that after the feeding of the 5,000, that's all they were looking for. And they wanted to take Jesus right then and there, and they wanted to make him king. A little bit later, we'll see in Palm Sunday, it's the very same thing. They want to make him king, but yet they don't see clearly what the Bible has made clear. And so in this case, the disciples themselves see men like trees walking. They see Jesus, they see the shadow, they're not yet seeing the real thing. And I believe that's what's showing here. Because when this man does it, Jesus eventually comes and once again heals him. And what happens to the man? He sees clearly, the Bible says. You and I are pointed out to the fact that without Christ, you and I cannot see clearly. Without Christ, we cannot see God, the God who's revealed through Scripture. Without Christ, you and I cannot see who we truly are. Without Christ, we cannot see our need of a Savior and the fact that one day we'll stand before God. Without Christ, you and I are without hope. We cannot even see why life is is the way it is. Disciples will soon understand that Jesus is the Messiah. But at this moment, they do not yet fully grasp who He is. And as we look next week, this is all pivoting, because next week, all of a sudden, we see a glimmer as the door is open, as Peter confesses that Jesus is Christ, and I want to encourage you to come for that message next week, they still will not fully grasp that he is to be a suffering Messiah. This passage is leading up to that pivotal scene of Peter confessing Christ. At this point, they're witnessing something wonderful. They're witnessing something extraordinary. They're witnessing even something supernatural. They believe he's the Messiah. They believe that he is the Christ. But they're still unsure of what that means or even what his mission is. So for you and I, how do you and I take that now? I believe it's very simple. You and I need to see and be aware of both the common and unique ways in which Jesus displays his wonder-working power and grace each day. You and I need to see, how, what has God done for you this week? You know, it's sad to me when we have people that where I'll take a moment, and it's not just this church, it's many other churches. And I'll say, all right, does anyone want to give a testimony? Anyone want to praise to God? And so we give a moment, and it's just silent. Anyone want to give God thanks? Anyone seen God today? And it's just silent. But you and I need to see that God is in every moment, every breath, every function of our organ. Everything that you and I have, we owe to Him. And it's a common grace way in which Jesus shows Himself, but also in the saving way that He shows Himself, the unique ways. Instead of looking for more signs for God and Christ, they're already right here among us within ourselves. And we need to see and be aware of both of those things. You and I also must not fall in the trap of expecting Jesus to work in ways we expect or doubt that he is good when he does not. Some of us have pigeonholed God and believes that God can only work this way. Jesus can only work this way. And when he doesn't, we begin to doubt him. 
cannot fall into that trap. For that's what's going on with the disciples. That's what's going on to the Pharisees. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. The Messiah will only do this. And Jesus didn't. So we doubt him. So whether you're a Christian today or you're someone who's looking for a Savior, you need to recognize that Jesus works in the way that God has predetermined. Number three, we must also realize that all who reject, and this is important, because this is why the warning is so important. You and I must realize that all who reject Jesus as Messiah will face the wrath of God and will be judged accordingly. And so my plea comes here today. If you have not accepted Jesus, what else does Jesus need to do to show you that he's the Savior of the world? How else do you need to be convinced that one day we will be judged and stand account for God? The Bible says a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's not speaking of saying an atheist. That's saying of people who live their lives, who act in their lives and think in their lives as if they'll never have to give an account of themselves. And they live their lives anyway. There are many people who profess Christ that are fools. Because they live their lives as if they'll never stand before a holy God and give an account. So let us be warning. We need to encourage others to see this. Then lastly, all of this should lead you and I to lovingly pray for those who are blinded by the God of this world. That's why they couldn't see. They're blinded. Naturally blinded. Supernaturally blinded by the God of this world. And that the Holy Spirit may open their eyes as he did to the disciples. As he did to Nicodemus. To the truth. It should lead us to worship and gratitude for all that God has done for us. I'd ask for you to take a moment. Would you pause and just consider what was spoken forth this morning? What do we find in Mark? Would you pray? And would you respond to what God is calling to your life? Maybe you're like the Pharisees and you've allowed a little leaven. Maybe you're here today and you still do not see Jesus as the Son of God. I pray that you would pray for God to open up your eyes that you may see it. Maybe it's time just to ask God, show me how you're at work in my life. Strengthen and respond to my doubt. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Mark. And this is a long passage of scripture, but let us see, Father, that one day we will stand before you. The Bible tells us that at one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, Father, we glorify you in that. But Lord, I pray that we would do so today in preparation. For until that time, if they have not here on earth, it will be too late in heaven. I pray now, Lord, that you'd open the eyes of any who are blinded, for any who still do not know that you are the Son of God, for those who might be struggling or doubting, for those who are still looking for a sign. Lord, I pray that you'd come and you show them the only sign promise, that of an empty tomb. And Father, I pray that we would be filled with gratitude. Let us see the unique and common ways in which you work in our lives and in our families. Father, in creation, Lord, that we may sing and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. 
There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.